It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. Experience more episodes, videos, and Bible study resources at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Who is God? Part 2. As Christians, we love, praise, and honor God, and rightfully so. The question is, do we really know God? We say we do as we pray to Him and try to follow His leadings. That's good. But there's a difference between needing God and actually knowing Him. How do we learn to know what we don't know about God? Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 25 years. And Julie, a longtime contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for this episode? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So many people believe that God is a man-made myth. They see him as a figment of the imagination of religious zealots who desperately seek some kind of higher power. When you look at the mythological gods or the gods of some religious factions, you can certainly see the reasoning for that point. However, when we look at the God of the Bible, it has an entirely different story. What other book, what other belief system gives you such a detailed and specific approach to knowing who God is the way the Bible does? In part one of our series, we focused in on God's introduction to the world of humanity in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We then focused on how God revealed himself to Abraham. As we began this uh, second part of our series, let's recap about how, and see how God had been revealed through the creation and through Abraham. This will set the stage for the next steps of seeing who God is. The entire first chapter of Genesis only uses one word to describe God, Elohim. This word is also used to describe rulers and judges. What do rulers and judges have in common? Power and authority. The Genesis 1 creation account primarily establishes the Creator's power and authority. What does this tell us about God then? Recognizing God as Elohim reminds us that He always has and always will have the authority to proclaim and the power to accomplish any and every creative act that He deems appropriate. His will and might are the source of all righteous creation. So Elohim is this power and authority recognition of God. When we look at that, folks, do we see God and do we instinctively recognize his power and authority, not just in the big creative things, but in our personal lives? Genesis chapter 2 adds another word to further describe God. He is now called Jehovah Elohim. In our English Bibles, that's Lord God. Jehovah means self-existing one, essentially saying, I was, I am, and I will be. While this word exalts God even higher, it also brings him closer to us because Genesis 2 was written to highlight the creation of man as the absolute focal point of the entire earthly creative process. Jehovah Elohim did all of this so he could have an earthly human family. Let's read from Genesis 2, verse 7, and I will substitute Lord and God with Jehovah and Elohim throughout this episode. Then Jehovah Elohim formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. You got to think about this because no other earthly creation was so personally created and so personally energized by Jehovah Elohim. What does that tell us about God? Recognizing God as Jehovah is to help us see his lofty character made accessible to humanity. Jehovah Elohim created our physical realm to establish a home for his earthly children. Every time we see Jehovah mentioned in Genesis 2, it always has something to do with relationships. And it's interesting because you have this 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 description Jehovah as was is and always will be, but yet it's about his connectivity with the human race. And that's such an important thing. Folks, do we see that? Do we recognize that? Do we seek that as we look toward Jehovah? 
So we talk about this Jehovah. Let's just recap real quick from part one. In the Hebrew Bible, this name Jehovah appears as four Hebrew consonants. It's usually transliterated as YHWH or JHWH. It's called the Tetragrammaton. And both Jews and Christians throughout the centuries have deemed this name either unpronounceable or too sacred to pronounce. The scholarly consensus is it should be pronounced Yahweh. But at least since the 1500s, it's been translated into English with the spelling and pronunciation, including vowels, Jehovah. When used as a verb, Yahweh means he will come. When used as a name or a noun, it means he who becometh or the becoming one. Let's continue. When the time came for Messiah's lineage to be established, God, God saw fit to give Abraham greater insights into God's connection with his human family than ever before. God was proclaimed to Abraham as El Elyon, which can be understood as the most exalted or supreme God. What does this tell us about God? Recognizing God as El Elyon emphatically places him high above any other contrived God or deity. He is supreme. This reverent title serves as a serious reminder that our God is, in fact, the only God. And this is one of those places where you pause and consider, do I have other quote-unquote gods in my life, and how much influence do I allow them to have? Do I look at El Elyon and say, this is my only supreme God and put all of those other things away? That is what God's name is telling us to do. In Genesis 15, Abraham prays to God in desperation because he does not yet have a son as the promised seed. In this sincere plea, he introduces another new description of God. He calls him Adonai. This word carries a thought of sovereign Lord and is fitting because Abraham was lifting up his very real concerns before him. What does this tell us about God? To recognize God as Adonai is to humbly recognize him as the sovereign Lord over every aspect of the lives of those who serve him. How am I doing? Do I see God as sovereign Lord not just when I'm in church, not when just I'm feeling spiritual, but as sovereign Lord over every aspect of every part of my Christian walk. That is what God is telling us in this recognition of him as Adonai. In Genesis 17, Abraham is desperate. He is 99 years old, and the idea of a promised seed at this age seems impossible. God speaks to Abraham and describes himself as El Shaddai. We understand Shaddai in this usage to mean God Almighty, most powerful and all-sufficient. What does this tell us about God? Accepting God's own proclamation of himself as El Shaddai is to embrace the fact that he is the all-powerful and sufficient God who can see things through even when they are completely hopeless in our own eyes. So again, we see another name, another description for Almighty God, and it's saying to us, I am sufficient. Do we listen? Do we acknowledge? Do we embrace his sufficiency when we look at our experience and say, I don't know what to do? There's always an answer. It is El Shaddai. Another name for God in the Old Testament is Jehovah Rapha. We understand this to mean Jehovah, the self-existing one who heals. While this exact phrase didn't first appear in the accounts of Abraham, a very similar phrase did when in Genesis, Abraham prayed to Elohim and Elohim healed. The exact phrase first appears in Exodus when the bitter waters of Marah were sweetened. The waters were healed. They were now drinkable. What does this tell us about God? When we recognize God as Jehovah Rapha, it's acknowledging that he alone is the ultimate source of caring and healing. And he does so in his time and in his way. So when we have the despair and anguish of our own lives, do we rely upon this God of healing to be able to take that 
from us. You know, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. What is that telling us? That in the New Testament is telling us exactly what this Old Testament name for God is saying. Put those cares upon him. In Genesis 21, Abraham and Abimelech made a covenant of peace and understanding between them. Abraham named the place El Olam, which means the eternal God. This is the first time in Scripture that a place is named for God. What does this tell us about God? To recognize God as El Olam, it's to acknowledge that he is everlasting in all that he does. When we make binding promises, like Abraham did with Abimelech, El Olam is our example and a reminder to keep our promises. And again, God's name is showing us it's a stamp of remembrance. He is everlasting. That sense of, I need to be everlasting in the things that I say and do with integrity. As Abraham named the place after this everlasting God, it helps us, it gives us a standard up to which to strive for so that we can be godly in the way we treat everyone around us. Our last account of God's power, influence, and friendship in Abraham's life is when he was willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. God stopped him and provided a ram for sacrifice. Abraham's response was to name that place Jehovah Jireh, which means Jehovah sees. What does this tell us about God? Recognizing and worshiping God as Jehovah Jireh is to embrace the fact that he sees all, and he responds for the ultimate well-being of all. Abraham's extraordinary faith enabled him to see this aspect of God's extraordinary character. And there's a lot of extraordinary there, because that's what it is. God is so far above us. We have all of these names that we went over in part one of our three-part series to remind us, to build a foundation for how broad our God truly is. And this, this all sets a pattern for not only, uh, not only understanding God, but for memorializing his name. Again, you have this, this memorialization, Jehovah Jireh. It gives us a sense of, I know that God sees and God helped me. You know, in, in, in the heart-rending experiences of our lives, God takes care of us. Do we memorialize that the way Abraham did? That's one of the points here. We want to put this all together. So this has been a review of what we talked about in our last uh, episode. Jonathan, so let's once again attempt to grasp the greatness of God. We have only touched on the book of Genesis, and already God's greatness is scarcely describable. He has power and authority and is self-existing and yet profoundly connected to humanity. Through his relationship with Abraham, he demonstrated many practical ways that we as human beings can have him as an exalted presence in our lives, no matter what our experiences are. All of this, and it is just the beginning. Rick and Julie, I love this aspect of knowing so many of the different names of God. This gives me personal peace when I read God's different names in his word. I am just not reciting them. They are all have some special meaning to them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a good practice to remind ourselves these names exist, what they mean, so we can understand our God more fully in our everyday life. And folks, this was just last week. We haven't even started to start here yet. So while the journey towards knowing who God is, is uh, we've taken so far, it's, it's, it's profound, but it's only the introduction of what is to come. Thus far, we know God to be powerful and present in the lives of those who serve him. What comes next? In part one of our series, we looked at a specific point in time where something changed. That point was when God chose Abraham to become the father of the promised seed Isaac, who represented Jesus the Messiah. Well, we've come to another point where something dramatic changes. God's dealings and influence are about to personally touch millions. Our next revealment of who God is comes from God's relationship with Moses and Israel. While we so far have seen Abraham develop a powerful relationship with God, 
Generations later, Moses would develop a powerful but uniquely different relationship with him as well. God introduced himself to Moses through the burning bush when he appointed Moses to be the instrument of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. It is important to note that Moses became the one individual who puts God's name into the world by writing the first five books of Genesis. It was here in Exodus that Moses learned the name of God and was able to use that name to recount and write in Genesis about all of the early revealing of God and his nature. It's very cool to me that God reveals his name to Moses and then he happens to be the guy who writes the introduction to everything. There's no coincidence. That's part of the greatness of God. Here, here's my name and here's how you describe me so everybody can eventually know. So let's look at how that unfolded. God tells Moses to go to the children of Israel and deliver them. Now, that sounds like a pretty extraordinary task for Moses. We'll we'll unfold that in a moment. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. And Jehovah said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. I love, Jonathan, how you read, I have seen their affliction, I've heard their cry, I know their sorrows, I've come down to deliver. God sees their great need. He sees it, and he's doing something about it. And it's always in his time and in his way. Now, God has, was described here as Jehovah, but Moses did not yet know God by that name. But this is how Moses is recounting it for us. God appoints Moses as the deliverer. Exodus 3.10 continues with, Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. You could just see Moses going, wait, what? Like, I'll send you. You're going to send who is going? And he looks behind him, but there's nobody behind right. him. We know he wanted to know more about God, but I don't think he was expecting this kind of assignment. Like, what are the logistics of migrating millions of people being held hostage in a foreign country? Well, think about it. Moses had leadership training while he was in Pharaoh's court as a young man. Of course he was the right man for the job. God overruled his experiences in life, knowing he could handle the responsibility of leading God's people to freedom. That's just like he does for us for the future kingdom work. Now, listen for the assurance God is going to give Moses as I read Exodus 3, 11 through 12. And Moses said unto Elohim, who I am, that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve Elohim upon this mountain. Certainly I will be with thee. What comforting words to hear from the Almighty. Yeah, they're comforting, but you know what? This is a scary assignment. I don't care what you say. You, you're, you're there, and now you're being told this is what you're going to do. Moses recognizes God as having power and authority here, unquestionably, Elohim. That's how he addresses him. He does not yet see the big, bigger picture, though. God does not yet reveal himself, but responds to Moses in a way to provoke him to seek understanding. God is drawing Moses to him, Because when we have a desire to know something, once we know it, it sinks in that much more fully. Let's look at Exodus 3, 13. And Moses said unto Elohim, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The Elohim of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? (laughs) Okay, God, great you got to help me here. And you could, you could feel the trembling in Moses with this response. Moses needs to know who God is. He, needs, he sees the power, but he needs to have something more tangible because he can't say to them, hey, guess what? I saw this brush that was burning and it never burned up. There's got to be something more. And so he, he needs to be able to identify God personally. Let's look at Exodus 3, 14 to 15. And El- 
Elohim said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And Elohim said, Moreover, unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Jehovah Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Let's talk about Elohim introducing himself to Moses as I am. This is fascinating. It is a companion form of the word Yahweh. These Hebrew words mean I will be what I will be or I will become what I please to become. God related his ability as and his intention to their great need and promised to become to them all that they needed. So God promised Moses by his holy name to supply that need. In Hebrew, I'll probably not pronounce this right, Ayasher Ayah, I am. It means I will be to you what you need me to be. It's put forth as this gracious promise, this assurance that the divine power and capacity were adaptable to any circumstance, to any difficulty, and to any necessity. This should be huge to us in our own personal walk. This is how God answers Moses' question. You know, who shall I say who sent me? And this is the response he gets. The one who sends you is the same Jehovah, the same self-existing mighty one with power and authority who created uh, earth and heaven for humanity. The same one is being sent for Israel's deliverance. Nothing less than the creator of all things is being sent for Israel's deliverance. You are getting only the most powerful being that ever can exist to back you up. So when I send you, Moses, I certainly have your back. So Jonathan, let's try to grasp the greatness of God here. God is intentional. His revealing of himself to Moses has established him as the God of power and authority and as the God who always is. This God in all of his exalted glory would deliver millions from hard slavery, makes them choose, makes them his chosen nation, and further reveals himself to them. So you've got this incredible unfolding of God Almighty before Moses. So now let, let's build on that. Another name for God in the Old Testament is Jehovah Sabaoth. This describes Jehovah as the self-existing one of those who go forth. This is key. Sabaoth can mean an army or a host, meaning a large number. And it's not limited to earthly groups. This is a fascinating scripture from the creation account in Genesis 2.1 that uses this word Sabaoth. Thus the heavens and the earth are finished, and Sabaoth, all the hosts of them. So you have God finishing the creation. And in Genesis 2.1, it says the heavens and the earth were finished. And then it says, and Sabaoth, all of them, all of the hosts. So it gives you the sense that there's this massiveness of all of the things that God did, all encompassed under that one word. So when we see Jehovah as recognized as Jehovah Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, you can see that it can be an incredibly, extraordinarily large picture. It's great to see how God is systematically revealing himself in these bigger and bigger ways. So yeah. when did God uh, first proclaim himself, though, to be Jehovah Sabaoth, or Lord of hosts of people? From creation unto this, the exodus from Egypt, God had never before described himself in relation to humanity as a Lord of hosts. Instead of a relationship just with individuals like Abraham and Moses, he would now have a relationship with millions of Hebrews who would, who would eventually become the nation of Israel. This is a massive paradigm shift, a huge step forward. So we're going to put that Jehovah Sabaoth to work in this scripture because that's what the scripture tells us to do. But just remember, all of the host of creation were finished who created them god put that perspective in line as we read god's relationship with this new nation of israel being delivered from egypt exodus 12 41 to 42. and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years even the self-same day it came to pass 
that all the hosts of Jehovah went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto Jehovah for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is the night of Jehovah to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. All the hosts of Jehovah, Jehovah Sabaoth here. This is, these are all his people. It's not just one here, one there, a family there. This is the Lord of hosts. Wow. Who is God? Hmm. He is Jehovah Sabaoth, the self-existing God of multitudes. And it's this God of multitudes who delivered them. You see the dramatic expansion here. And, and, and think about this. Just, just, just take, take a moment here. You've got God talking to Moses long before this happens and revealing his name. And then God sending Moses. And now before Moses' eyes, God becomes not just I am that I am, but he becomes the Lord of hosts as he rescues millions in an impossible task. That is the power of God. So he becomes whatever they need him to be at that time. That's the beauty of this. And that's his name. That's right. his name. Are we recognizing the power of the name of God? Let's, let's pause on this Lord of hosts because it's such, such a powerful thing. There are several familiar scriptures that show us this wonderful connection. In the famous account of David and Goliath, David has gone to the front lines to bring lunch for his brothers, and he ends up being the one to fight Goliath. He picks up five stones for his slingshot, and Goliath starts, like we would say today, trash-talking him, making fun of the slingshot. Well, let's pick up in 1 Samuel 17, 44 and 45. And the Philistines said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Here's the greatest warrior of all time, taunting the teenager who isn't even wearing armor. It's like me challenging Michael Jordan to a game of basketball. <laughs> Good luck. You ain't winning. <laughs> you know, and that's the point. You've got this dramatic scene that just is not going to unfold well from a very physical, from a very earthly perspective. However, we have David there, and David's not alone. Jonathan, let's uh, continue with verse 45. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of Jehovah Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, Elohim, of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defiled. This wasn't just Goliath fighting David. It was Goliath fighting David and Jehovah Sabaoth and Elohim, the Lord God of millions. He picked the wrong guy to insult. He did. He did. And David understood. David knew. And David's faith rested not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Lord God who is whatever you need him to be so that his will can be done. Let's look at another example of the Lord of hosts in Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? Jehovah, strong and mighty, Jehovah, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? Jehovah Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory, Selah. Remember, Selah means pause and consider. Think about what David is describing. Now, look, we see David having all kinds of experiences, and his experiences brought us to this kind of a psalm so much later after he defeated Goliath by God, with God's help. This king of glory. Who is this king of glory? I'll tell you who it is. And he describes him as the Lord of hosts. Why? Because he is the Lord of the vast numbers of those who would follow him. He's not just a Lord of a person here or there. He is the Lord of hosts. It's a big, big, big picture of who Almighty God truly is. So Jonathan, grasping the greatness of God, have fun with that. The further we go, the more we see how Jehovah is not only God of individuals who follow him, but he is Jehovah Sabaoth, the self-existing sovereign of Israel. 
His role in the personal affairs of humanity is ever expanding. And got to ask ask ourselves, what about me? Do I see God as Jehovah Sabaoth? Do I see him as Lord of hosts, as Lord of all of the things that happen around me and all of those who honor him? Do I give him that kind of credit or do I just get stuck in my own little brain with all my own little trials? Folks, let's see God in the big way he needs to be seen. There are many descriptions and names of God in the Old Testament, and we've run out of time for an exhaustive study, but we're going to leave these other names for our listeners to discover on their own for homework. But what we have discussed should give us all a sense of awe and renewed appreciation for just how blessed we are to have a God like this. He is so clearly defined in so many ways that he can be everything to every part of all of us. We just need to remember that. As we further unfold the depth of God's character and his revealment of that character, all we can do, all we can do is to stand in awe. God, as the Lord of hosts, embraced Israel as his people. How else did our understanding of God expand through his relationship with them? All right, look, as you may have figured out by now, trying to quantify the overabundance of God's care for Israel, that's a futile task. His care, foresight, and wisdom are far too deep and comprehensive. So, for now, for now, let's just focus on a few of the remarkable examples of how God revealed himself to them. So we're just going to look at some examples, and each one of these folks has the power to blow you away. But you ju- we just want to give you a sense, this is what's out there in the Old Testament. Once Israel was delivered, their new life of dependence on Jehovah had begun, and there were many aspects to this dependence. The nation of Israel was being given the law, the Ten Commandments, the law from God, and God began the beginning the, of those commandments this way. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 2. Then God, Elohim, spoke all these words, saying, I am Jehovah Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other Elohim before me. Now, that's a firm reminder of exactly who was responsible for freeing them from slavery. Recognize God for who he is. This is the God of power and authority who has personal interest in you. This is not trivial. Yeah, the God of power and authority, and yet you're important to him. This, right. you're right. There, it, is, it is so focused in. You shall have no other gods before me because I am your deliverer. God proclaims himself as high and powerful, rightfully so. He proclaims himself to be their highest priority, rightfully so. The second commandment, The second commandment brings another aspect of God clearly before the people, and this may not be one that you might expect. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Jehovah Elohim, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There's nothing tricky about the Hebrew word for jealous here. It means jealous as in, I demand your attention and loyalty. He is the one true God. Everybody and everything that exists, he made. He deserves our loyalty. And when you think about it, It is a complete waste of time and emotional effort to put our loyalty any place else. And that's what he was telling Israel. I demand, I am jealous because I am, you know, for us to, we, there's no, there's no place where we can say this and mean it in, in even a, a one, one millionth of a percent of the way God can say it and mean it. I am jealous because I am your deliverer, your creator. I am the source of all that you need. Yes, you had better focus on me. God is jealous. So who is God? As a jealous God, he is the self-existing, powerful, and authoritative God who demands our soul loyalty. Why? 
because there is no being or concept or tradition on any level anywhere that could possibly deserve one thousandth of the attention we owe him. I think you made better math than I'm giving you, but <laughs> one millionth, one millionth of a millionth of attention. It, infinity. It, it's it's an incomprehensible equation when you think about it, because the, the greatness of God, we can't. We are only scratching the surface of what we can see, folks. There's a whole universe out there that he created. We don't know anything about. Think about this. We're just seeing what it, he means to us here in this little, little area of, of his creation. Let's go to God's, uh, well, first of all, God's first three commandments are all about protecting the integrity of who he is among his people. Then he gives the fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath. And here we're going to see yet another aspect of his character unfold. Exodus 20, verses 10 to 11. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of Jehovah Elohim. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days Jehovah made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Jehovah blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This Hebrew word for holy means to be clean, ceremonially or morally. It is most often translated as sanctify in the Old Testament. Jehovah of hosts sanctified the Sabbath for his people Israel. He insisted the people stop everything so they could reserve the day for him. And here the word for holy, meaning sanctified or set apart, is used as a verb. Jehovah sanctifies. It's what he does. But soon God's going to use that word as part of his formal name. And this is an important transition. So this is what God does. He sets apart. He makes clean for his purposes. Jehovah hosts also sanctified the people as they were bound to his sanctified Sabbath day. So he set the day apart. And then in Exodus 31, 12 to 13, he now sets the people apart. Jehovah spoke to Moses saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am Jehovah Kadesh, the name Kadesh meaning the Lord who sanctifies you. So I am Jehovah Kadesh. I am the mighty one who sets you apart. He put the people of Israel into an entirely different category than any nation of the rest of the world. You are set apart for my holy purposes. I am giving you my law. This is what the power of God can do in our lives. Who is God? He's Jehovah Kadesh, the self-existing one who sanctifies. He sets you apart if you're part of his people. And by doing so, he gives his people clear access to him. So what about us? How are we sanctified, set apart from everybody else? You know, you, you know what it's like? Israel was set apart. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of quiet, a day of honoring God, and a day of meditation. And, and think about this. Think about you're going to have an important conversation on your cell phone. And you're at this stadium. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a rock concert. Maybe it's a sporting event. But there are tens of thousands of screaming people and they're stomping and they're throwing things. And, and it's just this, everybody's having a great time. And here you are trying to talk on your cell phone. How's that going to work out? Hmm. If this is an important conversation, it doesn't. You need to be set apart. You leave the stadium. You walk away. And then in the quietness of being apart, then you talk and you hear the important message, that's being sanctified, pulling away from all of the rigmarole, all of the mess, all of the noise, so God can talk with us. Let's continue. As the nation of Israel developed, so did the uncovering of who God is progress. Again, there's so much to say. Let's just go with a few simple examples. First one is Psalm 23. Everybody knows Psalm 23, and it just shows a subtle but very powerful description of God. In the very first verse, Jonathan, Psalm 23, 1. And this is from the New International Version. The Lord is my shepherd, or Jehovah Ra'ah, I lack nothing. This word for shepherd literally means to tend a flock 
and that means to pasture it. So it's saying, Jehovah is the one who takes care of me. So this 23rd Psalm that is so familiar to people, we have David, he's now the king of Israel, reflecting on his younger days when he was a shepherd. And the lion and the bear, they kept him up at night because they wanted to rob his sheep, but at risk to himself, he was their defense. He sought out the lush grass, the quietly flowing waters for the flock. He guards them when they when they were feeding. He had been to them what they needed him to be, a provider, a defender, a healer. David compares this experience to God. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my source of care and nourishment, Jehovah Ra'ah. And just to be technical, we've seen that perhaps pronounced as Rohi. So Roha, Rohi. The point is, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord takes care of me. And you know, in, in, in Psalm 23, 1, you read from the New International Version, it says, I lack nothing. And that's great to be able to make that proclamation. But let's look at Psalm 37, 3-6, to, to, to look at the reaction, the response of being fed, of being shepherded by God. Psalm 37, 3-6. Trust in Jehovah and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. This is the same word as shepherd, ra'ah, continuing. Delight thyself also in Jehovah, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto Jehovah. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Who is God? He is Jehovah Ra'ah, our shepherd, the self-existing one who should be trusted in, delighted in, and committed to. And the results will bring us nourishment, fulfillment, and direction. So it's a wonderful thing to have Jehovah providing for us, but we need to respond with our delight, our commitment, and our trust. It's a two-way street, and as God's God's life, God's God's character, God's God's wholesomeness unfolds before us, we need to embrace all of that and be responsive to it. Let's look to another example, this one with Gideon. So a little context. For worshiping fake gods and other evil acts, God allowed the Midianites to overpower the Israelites for seven years. Things were so terrible that the people cried out to God for help. An angel of the Lord appears. He tells Gideon that Gideon would be the one to lead the people to victory. And similar to how Moses reacted, humble Gideon asks God through this angel how that could possibly be because he's so young. He's from an unimportant family in his tribe. And he cries, oh, Adonai, meaning sovereign, how will I save Israel? So Gideon has got a problem. <laughs> he's being given an assignment, kind of similar to Moses, if you think about it. And he's, he's, he doesn't know how to handle it. So he shows great respect while he's unsure of what's happening. So this angel, through Jehovah, is speaking. Uh, while this angel is speaking, he performs a miracle. And he performs this miracle for Gideon. And now Gideon is, becomes sure of what's happening. He sees something that he didn't think was possible and now here's his response. Uh, Judges chapter 6, verses 22 to 24. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of Jehovah, Gideon said, Alas, Adonai Jehovah, meaning sovereign Lord, for because I have seen an angel of Jehovah face to face, and Jehovah said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto Jehovah and called it, Jehovah Shalom, meaning Jehovah is peace, or Jehovah gives peace. Unto this day it is yet in Afra of the Abbezrites. Now, after seeing the angel of Jehovah, Gideon was spared from death. He built an altar to commemorate this event. Jehovah was bringing peace and sanctity back to Israel. So Gideon could go confidently into battle. This is a beautiful testimony of Gideon looking at the greatness of God through this one small experience. God hadn't even done the work yet, but Gideon's faith is so strong, he builds this altar to Jehovah Shalom. He recognizes how important it is to become godly again as a nation, and he is given the privilege of leading that charge. He's given the privilege of leading the charge. He builds the altar, and yet nothing's happened yet. All he's been shown 
is I am here for you. And he, in great faith, builds this altar saying, okay, it's, it's essentially I've been delivered even though I haven't done the work. There's a powerful, powerful connection for what our faith should look like. So, Julie, when we look at this, who is God? Well, God is Jehovah Shalom. He's the self-existing one who brings us peace when we are faced with uncertainty beyond our capacity to understand. How well do we do when we are in that place where we don't understand? Can we build that memorial, that altar, that symbol that says, Jehovah is peace in my life? Because even though I don't know what the deliverance looks like, I know the deliverance will be there in God's way. Jonathan, that brings us to, you know what, trying, ever trying to grasp the greatness of God. Jehovah is high, lofty, and powerful. He seeks a relationship with those who would follow him rightfully demands our loyalty. In return, he sanctifies, nourishes, and cares for his people. When they are faced with great uncertainty, he brings them peace. Do I accept the peace of Jehovah? Jehovah is peace, even before I understand what the deliverance can look like. Am I in a position to say, this seems way over my head, but by God's grace, I have peace because he is with me. Looking at how God has revealed his relationship with his chosen people really helps us to see how he is God over every experience. God's capacity to be in every part of the lives of his chosen people is staggering. What else could possibly be added? Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> Actually, the question would be better stated. What else can we manage to fit into this small and limited overview of who God is? The rest of the Old Testament is overflowing with additional descriptions of God. What we'll do here is highlight a few of them to help us gain a broader and deeper perspective of the overwhelming character of God. And when I say overwhelming character, it is in the most positive, strong, uh, determined, full of foresight way. God's providence is everywhere because he is the creator of all. Throughout the Old Testament, there are several other themes that help us define who God is. In Psalm 18, Jehovah is described 10 different ways in two verses. He's described <laughs> 10 ways in two verses. So you, you got to read these, Jonathan, Psalm 18, 1 to 2. I will love thee, Jehovah, my strength. Jehovah is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, which is the word El, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Verses 1 to 2. There are 10 ways God, Jehovah, is described. So let's, let's put this together. Let's look at these 10 ways and let's put together an inter interpretation of what we think David is saying. I will love thee, Jehovah, my strength. He supplies my daily energy. I will love thee, Jehovah, my strength. Jehovah is my rock. And that word rock literally means a crag of rock. It's a strong foundation upon which I stand. I will love thee, Jehovah, my strength. Jehovah is my rock and my fortress. That word means literally a fortress, a strong, solid place to flee for protection. I will love thee, Jehovah, my strength. Jehovah is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. It is he who provides escape. So let, let's pause there. We've got four of these descriptions. And, and let's put it into the, the, the elements that I think David is trying to show us. He's saying, I am strong. I'm strong when I stand upon him, Jehovah, as my foundation in the drama of my own trials. In that drama, he is a place to flee for protection. And when I absolutely need deliverance, when I absolutely need it, he provides a way of escape. My strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Now I think David is talking about another aspect of his challenging experiences. Let's go through the next six descriptions of God. 
my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Julie, let's go through these. My God. My mighty one. My strength. Literally a rock or boulder. He's so strong that he can't be broken. My buckler. A buckler is a portable shield. You can hold it in the handle or wear it on your forearm. So I wear God's protection when faced with the enemy. My God, my strength, my buckler in whom I trust. His protection in the heat of the battle is unbreakable. And the horn of my salvation. A horn here is a symbol of power. He provides the power by which I am ultimately delivered. And my high tower. This literally means a cliff or other lofty, inaccessible place. His eyes see all as they watch for and warn of danger. I think of it like a drone flying high, reporting all that's happening. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> so we've got these, these next six descriptions. My God, my strength, my buckler, in whom I trust the horn of my salvation and my high tower. So David is describing his experiences, his difficult experiences, in a little more depth. He's saying God is mighty. He cannot be broken. His protection is sure, even when I'm in the heat of battle with my enemy. It is his power that delivers me, not mine. It's his. He is above the battle. I'm in it. I'm in the fray. I can't see. He can't. He's above the battle. He sees all. I just fight what's in front of me. And he warns and protects me while I am struggling in that daily moment-by-moment experience. What he's saying is, I have to do my part. But God Almighty always does his. And it's his providence that we live for. So we've got these 10 amazing descriptions of God in the first two verses of Psalm 18. Now, let's move towards Psalm 18, verses 3 to 6. And here's what we're going to see. David is going to present something that he needs. Now, he's just described God's capacity to deliver no matter what. And David is going to circle back around and say, here's my need. Now, I have all of that, but here's what I need. And, and what he needed was he needed to be heard. And this is really important. Jonathan, Psalm 18, 3 to 6. I will call upon Jehovah, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of the ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon Jehovah and cried unto Elohim. He heard my voice out of the temple, and my cry came before him even into his ears. Now think about this. Think about this. David is talking about the sorrows of death, the sorrows of Sheol, the snares of death. This is serious. He's not talking about, I was having a bad day at the office. He is talking about, my life is being threatened. I'm being overrun. I'm, 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 I don't know what to do. It's too big for me. And he says, I need to be heard. And it's interesting to me that he says, out of, I, I cried unto the Lord and he heard my voice out of the temple. In other words, he heard my voice out of my reverence for him because the temple is a place for reverencing God. He heard my voice. My cry came before him. So not only is Jehovah worthy of our praise, but he hears our cries. That's what David is saying. His power and authority respond to our voice when we are in need or when we are in danger or when we are in despair or when we feel the death surrounding us the incapacity to respond when all of that's happening, God is there. Let's go further in the psalm. Let's jump down to verses 29 to 33. Here, David is going to talk about what he received. Now, he described God at the beginning of the psalm in all of these wonderful ways. Then he cries out because he is so overrun. Psalms 18, 29 to 33 shows David's deliverance, what he received. David continues with some of the results that Jehovah has, has opened the door to for him. Psalm 18, 29-33. For by thee I have run through a troop, and by Elohim I have leaped over a wall. As for God, his per- way is perfect, and the word of Jehovah is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him. For who is God? 
save Jehovah, or who is a rock, save our Elohim. It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hind's feet and setteth me upon my high places. Wow, there's a lot there. Let's break this down. I have run through a troop. Meaning I've overcome the enemies that surrounded me. I have leaped over a wall. I've escaped their pursuit and they can't follow me. I am behind protection. He is a buckler to all those who trust in him. We know what a buckler is. God's protection is sure in my vulnerability. He is a rock. I stand upon his strength. He maketh my feet like hinds feet and setteth me upon my high places. This is an unusual uh, phraseology. It's found in two other places. A hind is a female deer who can place her back feet exactly where her front feet stepped. So she can run securely without stumbling, and this deer can scale a difficult terrain where others can't go. They can elude predators. Here David is saying God gave him the capacity to find God's refuge and to walk wherever instructed, even in the most precarious places and circumstances where he'd otherwise be afraid. We are better equipped to overcome obstacles if we have this kind of elegant, stable, and confident feet. (laughs) The thing about what David is describing here is he's talking about all kinds of circumstances where things are sour. I've run through a troop. I have overcome an enemy. I had to fight my way through. God delivered me, leaped over a wall. Like you said, Julie, I am behind a protective place now. I have been protected. Sometimes we need a breather. He's a buckler. That buckler is with you in the middle, in the heat of face-to-face battle. He's what I stand upon that rock. And to have my, my, my feet like hinds feet on high places, basically saying, no matter how precarious, no matter how difficult, no matter how impossible it looks to get from point A to point B, God has made my feet such that I can do it because he shows me where to step to be sure-footed and gives me the capacity to take those steps. That's a little bit of what Psalm 18 is telling us about the greatness of God. And folks, if you are not sitting there saying, this is amazing, then you're not listening. Rewind it and, and listen again, because there is so much here about the power of God's character. Let's go to another psalm, Psalm 46, verses 6 to 11. This is a very prophetic psalm, and it, but it, again, it shows us God as the Lord of hosts. One more time, Psalm 46, 6 to 11. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. Jehovah Sebaoth, and remember, that word means Lord of hosts, is with us. Elohim of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. I have to pause here. We have Jehovah, Sabaoth, and Elohim all together. This is a Selah moment. (laughs) Pause and consider. Continuing with verse 8. Come, behold the works of Jehovah. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am Elohim. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Jehovah Sabaoth is with us. The Elohim of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. There it is again. Three names in a row with another Selah moment, Rick. (laughs) The thing about this psalm, as much as it gives us the sense of the Lord of hosts and and his power and, and glory, This is actually a transition into the New Testament because what it's showing us is future. It's showing us that through Christ, all of these things are going to be solved. And in our next next part of the series, part three, we're going to focus in on Jesus' relationship with his Father and what that means to us. But this tells us unequivocally that God is the God of even the destruction of the things around us. Because his providence is bigger than the moment. That's what this is telling us. His providence sees into the future. We get stuck with, oh no, this is a catastrophe. He says, yeah, it is, but just for a moment, be patient. Watch. Be still and know that I am God. This is one of the assignments we want to give ourselves here. 
Jonathan, one last scripture before we close. Psalm 9, verse 10. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Jehovah, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Do I know God's name? Because that's what the psalm says. They that know thy, thy name put their trust in thee. Knowing God's name, this is huge, this is significant. Knowing God's name gives us the capacity to be more trusting of his character. Do I know God's name? Jonathan, one last, grasping the greatness of God. The more we open the door to understanding God's name, the more we open our minds to comprehend his greatness. He is the beginning plan and force behind our universe. He is the God who created humanity to be part of his family. He is the protector, guide, deliverer, and example for those who follow him. Let us be always reverently aware of his presence in our lives as we seek to do his will. Praise be to God. You know, I, I, I get speechless with this, and that's hard for me. You see the greatness, and it comes down to, folks, it comes down to, do I know the name of God so I can know the heart of God? That's what this is about. This is not about giving definitions. This is about unveiling the heart of the Almighty Creator who has a plan for the universe, for every man, woman, and child who ever lived. And all we've done thus far is look at it in the Old Testament. There's so much more to come. Do I know God's name? Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, Who is God? Part 3. Talk to you next week.